you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back, guys, to the podcast. I am super excited for this week's guest. I can't wait for you to listen to Mr. Joshua Coppell. He's one of my absolute favorite restaurant people. I first recorded Joshua about a year ago, and he's got an interesting story. You know, he's a southern boy from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, had a dream. He wanted to bring Cajun and Creole cuisine, uh, which he did to Los Angeles. But first, he started a super successful bar on the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame, which then transitioned into his Michelin-rated Prue and Proper restaurant down in the Garment District, you know, downtown Los Angeles. And then COVID hit. And now Joshua has pivoted to a podcast, the Full Comp Podcast, as well as an online reservation system that's helping restaurants um, with online reservations and text messaging and chat and having a virtual reservation agent that's dedicated to your business at a fraction of the cost of an hourly employee. It's a pretty amazing stuff, and he's also offering what he calls his 60 Day for 60 program, which uh, you definitely want to check out as well. So, with that said, on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and with me today is one of my absolute favorite restaurant people. He is not only a dynamic restaurateur, but a multi time entrepreneur, and we're going to talk about all about. Mr. Joshua Coppell's Adventures in Restaurant Land. So welcome to the show, Joshua. How are you? I'm great, man. I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, so we go back, God, it was probably a year ago when we did our oh, first yeah. recording, and I interviewed you for the podcast, and back then it was pre-COVID, and you were um, rocking and rolling with your restaurant. It's in Los Angeles. It's called Prue and Proper. We're going to talk a little bit about that and how you transitioned to an all-new company, sort of pivoted with the COVID pandemic, of course. But before we do, you know, you got such an interesting backstory. You're the Southern boy from Baton, you know, Baton... Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that's it. And you had a vision and you had a dream and you moved to the big city of LA, Los Angeles, and uh, you brought Southern style Creole cuisine there, but it first started with a bar. So why don't you take us there? Give us your whole story about how you went to move and what the vision was and how you achieved it all and what you started. And you got a Michelin rating. I want to hear all about that. And then the pandemic hit. So take us there. You got it. Um, so I, I moved out to LA with, with a, a big idea in mind. The idea was that I was going to go to Los Angeles, this very forward-thinking, progressive city. I was going to find an amazing concept, and I was going to bring it back to Baton Rouge. And I was in LA for six months, and then a year, and then five years. And, and, and what I realized during my time in Los Angeles was, was that it wasn't that Baton Rouge needed more Los Angeles. It was that Los Angeles needed more Baton Rouge. I was incredibly fortunate in the way that through just a series of fortunate events, I ended up running uh, nightclubs in Hollywood for quite a while and ended up starting my own clothing line. And when I licensed that right around 2008, 2009, when the uh, recession hit, uh, I wanted to get back into hospitality, but I wanted to do it on my terms. And I wanted to bring the hospitality experience that I grew up with to Los Angeles. And so I opened 504 Hollywood which is the Gary Cook for New Orleans, uh, which was, I, I would say, a New Orleans-inspired bar, not a New Orleans-themed bar. 
it wasn't it wasn't built to feel like New Orleans. It was meant to feel like a bar that you would find in New Orleans. So was and it just so, a bar, or you did some food as well, or it was just sort of a inspired oh, we did food. Bar. We you did okay. some food. It was yeah. terrible and inconsistent at best. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what we were known for. What we were known for was our hospitality model. It was the overall experience. Um, what I wanted was and in. I'm sure you grew up with this as well. I just wanted that bar that you could go to by yourself and not feel alone. I wanted that bar that you could go to, and not only would the bartender get to know you, but the bartender would take the time to introduce you to everyone else in the bar as well. I wanted that familial experience. You think about Los Angeles and it's so transient, you know? You need that, that home away from home. And I wanted to create a concept that people felt comfortable going every day. So it was really welcoming whether you were a native Angelino or you lived there for a short period of time or you just got off the bus or the train and now you hit LA and wow, here's, here's a place that's based on hospitality and everyone's your friend and you just feel comfortable. I love that. That's really what the, the business is all about. That's what the passion really was all about and that sort of thing. So it's amazing to me that you, you, you very honestly and candidly admit that the food was terrible and all that sort of thing. And then you transition to Prue and Proper, which becomes a Michelin-rated <laughs> restaurant. How does this happen? Oh, my goodness. Hubris. It was, it was my ego. I, I, you know, I was so fortunate the way that 504 cranked from the day it opened. It made money. It made a lot of money from the day it opened. And so I, I was done with that tier of dining. And I was like, okay, what's next? Well, let's try fine dining. How hard could it possibly be? Um, and it was a nightmare. I mean, it was a nightmare from the moment we opened. Uh, it, it, over the course of the first year, I, I spent all of my time putting out fires, apologizing profusely to guests. Um, and, and 11 months into that process, um, and having had no prior restaurant experience. I'd only worked in nightlife. I'd only worked in bars, nightclubs, ultra lounges. I'd never actually worked in a restaurant. Um, I decided to take it over. I let go of the executive chef. I let go of the general manager. I took over as general manager and, uh, and, and uh, hired a new executive chef that eventually became my business partner. And, uh, and I decided to do with the restaurant what I did with the bar, which was Start with the baseline assumption that I am not special, that I, my wants, my desires, my needs are not unique to the world, that what I want is what other people want. So we served what I thought other people would want and what I would want. And we treated people the way I would want to be treated. And we ran the restaurant in a way that I would find charming. And, uh, and it resonated with people because I am, if nothing, I am exceptionally average. Um, and so I, I just, I'm that baseline. You're exceptionally humble is what you are because you've had extraordinary achievements and they continue. Now, I understand when things weren't going so well with Crew and Proper, you were ready to hang it up, throw in the towel, and then you met the chef whose name is Sammy. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Now, yes. how did you meet and, and you had some sort of chemistry that just sort of lit the place up and now, you know, it, it really worked. But tell us about that because the chemistry between staff, especially a, you know, a lead person like a chef in a restaurant is so important. And you know, I don't have to say too much about it. I've had 
great chefs. I've had average chefs. I've had chefs with attitude. I've had chefs that love hospitality and they're part of the front of house team. It's been all over the map and it's such Mm -hmm. a hard position to fill because there's so many skill sets. You got to be great as a culinarian. You've got to be really strong on the cost controls and run a tight ship and scheduling and labor and all those important things, not just putting out the pretty food, but then you've also got to get along with the rest of the team. You got to keep a level head and it's a long list of of the ideal chef, you know, qualifications. And you certainly found that. So where'd you find Sammy? Facebook messenger. Um, Sammy find you or did you find Sammy? No, I, I found, we were linked up through a mutual friend. So I didn't know any other chefs. Again, I don't, I don't come out of food service. Right. Right. So I didn't know anyone. So I reached out to every, uh, like restaurant owner, beverage director, everyone I knew that was in the industry. And I said, Hey, I'm looking, do do you know anyone that that might be interested in this job? And my boy, Devin Espinoza, his roommate, uh, from the, the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, had just moved to LA. He'd been out here about a year. He was doing pop-ups and he thought we would be a good fit just based off personality. And that roommate was Sammy Monsoor. And so we met uh, for coffee. And and I'll tell you a a story that'll just let you know, like who Sammy is as a person. We, We had never seen each other in person and we met for coffee just to see if we could vibe off of each other. And he texted me and he said, Hey, I just want to let you know I'm running five minutes late. Uh, but when I come in, I'll be wearing a gumbo hat, like a hat that says the word gumbo on it. And I just thought to myself, like, that's thoughtful because we don't know what each other look like, you know? Yeah. So how thoughtful that he took the time to like put me at ease before we even met. And, uh, and we talked about food and culture and family for two hours. And, And at the end of that, I hired him. I never had food. I turned to my business partner and I said, if he can cook as good as he can talk, we'll be just fine. Love it. So baptism by fire, right? So he gets in the kitchen and what were the first couple of weeks like? Were things smooth? Were they topsy-turvy? Did you ever second guess the decision or you're like, oh my God, was this amazing? And now we're just rocking and rolling. It was great. You know, it's, and I'm sure every other restaurateur and every other entrepreneur listening can appreciate this. There are people that act like employees and people that act like owners. And Sammy came in and exerted ownership over the place from the beginning. He came in with a two man team. He interviewed the entire back of house staff, kept a bunch of the guys, let a few of the guys go, um, and then reworked all of the stations for his menu, which at the time, was an eight item menu. And his commitment to me was that he could execute these eight items, they would be perfect, and the the menu will grow over time. And over the course of the next 12 months, it grew to a 30 item menu uh, and and two two different services. But it was was amazing and it was magical to see. He had this enthusiasm that galvanized the staff and me. God, how inspiring that is to everyone out there because you got to know as difficult it is to hire and find great people and motivate a staff, the right people are out there and you can't give up. You really have to look for the best people that have the chemistry, that have a strong desire to serve the public, that really care about what they're doing, you know, because otherwise why do it? You know, if it's not what you're all about, then the fit is incorrect. So 
I've seen so many restaurants go wrong with bad hires, and you're giving us a prime example of how it should go. So you were in, um, you were in Hollywood, right? Uh, the original yeah. bar was in Hollywood, and then you mm -hmm. moved to the Garment District, downtown LA? Was it the yeah, Garment I District? Yeah, I did, downtown LA, yep, the yeah. Fashion District. Fashion District, so you, it's interesting because I was in the fashion business, you may or may not remember that, in Los Angeles. This would have been 1991 to 1993, and yeah, we were operating out of the Fashion District, and we had a showroom at the California Mart, and a sales mm -hmm. rep, and all this kind of stuff. It was like a really heady time for me. But I remember that neighborhood. So how did you end up downtown? Did you know you wanted to be there? Were the rents cheaper? Did you find the ideal space? Like, how did that location thing come about? You know, I think everyone's going to listen to this interview and be like, man, this guy just fell into everything in his life. And I did. Um, I owned a clothing line. And so... Your office was in the California Mart. My office was in the New Mart right across the street. And Caddy Corner to the New Mart and the Cal Mart yeah. is the building that is now Prue and Proper. And I used to eat lunch there every day at the time. Uh, it was a single-story restaurant called Angelique. Uh, the family that owned it actually lived on the second floor. And I fell in love with the building. And I always said if I was ever going to do anything else in hospitality, I would want to do it in this building. And when it came available, uh, I didn't even find out through like a real estate agent that it came available. I was reading the openings and closings and found out that the restaurant itself had closed and I saw it as my opportunity. I reached out to the landlord and negotiated the lease. Did it have curb appeal at the time or did you need to fix it up a lot? Oh yeah, we put a ton of money into it. There was no, no curb appeal. There was really no curb. I mean, we're two blocks off Skid Row. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. When, we, when we took it over, there was nothing but it was cheap because of it, right? And so the idea was is that we would grow with the neighborhood. Now, when you look around, you see all of these like high rise, mixed use things. Yeah. Those were parking lots six years ago when we took over the space. I remember that. And the original clientele, were they all part of the fashion business? Were they garmentos and everyone attached to them? That famous term. A, a little bit. Um, we yeah. I, So with 504, which was located on Hollywood Boulevard, right? On the Walk of Fame, tons of tourist business. Yeah. I never concerned myself with it. I always focused on the neighborhood, on the community and servicing the community. That's what I wanted to do. And so the reason that I chose downtown LA was because it's a densely populated residential area. And so if you can service their needs, they'll serve you, they'll serve you right? And And... And so that's, that's why we went there. That was the strategy that the people that live and work there will be the people that pay our bills. And did it focus exclusively on, you know, Cajun and Creole cuisine, like the Southern roots that you had originally envisioned, or did you offer other choices besides that broadened up the menu? Initially, it was almost exclusively Cajun and Creole. When Sammy came in, uh, what we decided to do was take a new take on it, something a bit broader, and focus on Southern food and focus on like the reimagining of Southern staples. So it was, it was about taking the food you grew up with, these very, very simple dishes, and elevating them to the level of fine dining. That's, that's an excellent story. How many seats did you have, Joshua? We had 160 seats. Okay, nice size restaurant. Did you have an open oh, yeah. kitchen by any chance, or can you describe the ambiance inside? Like, what, is it, what was the groove, the vibe of this place? If I was to walk in for the first time, what would I see? That's a great question. So uh, it's two stories, and Prue and Proper represents the duality of the concept. The first floor was a bar room, 
and there was there was an open kitchen there was at least the past was open so that people could see and hear the kitchen um and it was a bustling bar room uh always busy we had a separate bar room menu uh that, that would serve light bites and things like that you also had access to the dining room menu of course um and then you you would walk up this beautiful exposed stairway so it could only be described as, as like a proper dining hall i love it Stunning. um you know aesthetically i just went I, I wanted to do the antithesis of everything that i saw uh not to offend anyone that's listening but like the trends that i see are like dark woods dark paints and dead animals on the wall and there's nothing wrong with that but that's just not my state so mine is white and bright and there's nothing on the walls it is it is it is decorated by the people that inhabit the space Ooh, i like that i wanted to create uh, a platform right i wanted to create a stage whereby it's the movement it's the motion that's going around that creates the energy and the entertainment a blank canvas yeah very simplistic very pure very clean very light and airy i'm sure i'm getting all of that as as i'm talking to you so you're as you're as passionate about hospitality and about service as i am so i can only imagine how you trained your staff because your staff are the ambassadors of your business they're the ones that are interacting you know one-on-one -on -one, giving personal touches to your customers they're leaving the most memorable impressions on your customers that often lead to repeat business and buzz and new customers and all that sort of thing can you take us through how you found you know your staff and how you train them and the philosophies you may have in you know imbibed them with or inspired them with because they're a reflection of you and your business and i'm sure cohesiveness and chemistry and that whole team thing was so important tell us your thoughts there oh it's huge um so for us the the, the general operation of the restaurant was difficult split floor concept um, a dual bars, a bar on each floor, um, manufacturing different things for different levels and different customers. Um, it was difficult. And we also consistently overbooked. I mean, that's, that's how you make money in the industry. So you're looking at a very busy restaurant that's very fast paced and infrastructurally is very difficult to work within. Uh, the book that, that most informed my management style would be Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, Jim said, that you do not hire people that need to be managed or motivated. And it really, it really struck me because I spent most of my professional career up until that point, like directly managing and motivating people and saying, please show up on time, please show up in uniform. What do I need to do to make these things happen? And when, and when those two things, those two ideas became, uh, you know, the, the rules that we lived by, everything changed. Um, I also restructured it so that instead of having a list of rules, we had five core values and, and they, they revolve around attention to detail and the idea that everybody leaves happy. Not that anyone leaves, you know, content or, or, or that nobody leaves upset, but that everybody leaves happy, happier than they initially walked in. And when you set these ideals and when you spend most of your time explaining to your team why you built it, why you spent all that money, why you're there 80 to 100 hours a week, and why it should matter to them, they answer most of their own questions. If someone didn't like the pork chop, I don't care how expensive it is. Pull that shit off the table. Like, you, your guests aren't obligated to like everything you do. 
Um, and it's not their fault they didn't like it. And they shouldn't have to pay for a dish that they don't want to eat. Um, and, and so, you know, in, in discussing the values with them, it creates this autonomous structure. You're there to provide guidance in terms of triaging, right? Do this, then do this, then do this. Uh, you're there to provide support on the off chance they're not able to independently handle the situation. And you're there to provide education around the cuisine and core values and the beverage program. How was that? Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Listen, LA, I don't need to tell anybody, but LA is one of the most competitive restaurant cities on the planet. And when I lived there, and that's decades ago, it was all about the restaurant of the moment. And, and LA is a trendy sort of place. And as soon as buzz hits and maybe a celebrity visits a restaurant, then the public flocks to it and it's hot for the moment. And then maybe a month later, it's no longer hot. Did you find that to be true? And how do you combat that when you're a restaurateur in LA? when you're, you're trying to stay relevant in a sea of restaurants that are all trying to stay relevant and all the new restaurants that are trying to become the next hot thing. How do you compete with that? That's a great question. It's just, for me, it was always this beautiful balance of trying to do interesting, relevant things uh, and playing my own game, trying to do the things that were cool to us because I think that that authenticity translates. What do they say? They say that boring people get bored. So um, I, I think that, that people that aren't doing relevant things are probably less relevant. So we, we tried to, to always push the envelope, always try to be new and creative um, and not necessarily like follow trends with cuisine, but, you know, trying to, to activate the community in a way that inspired them. Let's talk about marketing a little bit, because marketing to most restaurateurs means spending lots of money on things like radio and PR firms and direct mail and, you know, maybe even print. Print is dead, but so, certainly social media. But I mean, you can spend a tremendous amount of money trying to market your restaurant just to reach new customers and build awareness for what you're doing. And I always found that, you know, training your staff to be brand ambassadors for your business and making friends with the customers and giving them reasons to come back again and, you know, tell their friends and to post on social media. I mean, you got an army of people that can be marketers for you that cost little to no money. Where do you fall into that? Uh, which camp do you fall into? Uh, I, again, I, I just have a unique perspective on it. I, I think that you look internally and you try and create a message that resonates. And if you create a message that resonates, with your target audience, you don't have to inspire anyone to do anything. I, all, of, all of my kids that worked with me, they always reposted what we did, but it was because it was cool shit. It's because it was like cool and interesting right. and reflected who they were as people. And the community was really active and like liking and commenting and reposting and retweeting for us. But it's because the messaging resonated. I, I think everybody is, focused on the audience when you have to be focused on the message. And it starts with authentically, you know, we didn't do social media. We didn't do any for years. And the reason being, I didn't know what I wanted to say, you know? So we would like post images of food and it was sexy food and it looked good and it would get likes, but there was no, mm -hmm. there's no engagement there. Right. But when you had something to say, when it was like, this neighborhood is worth saving, this neighborhood is worth putting work, into these are the initiatives that we care about 
what do you care about? You know, because it's also, it's not just reflective. You know, you, you have to pull from the audience. What dishes would you like to see? Where are we missing the boat? What campaigns would you like to see us launch? What restaurants are doing cool things that you think we should do too? Social media is not the opportunity for self-promotion. It is the opportunity to have a conversation with the people that you want to get in touch with. And Roger, you and I are, are very close in age. You know, I graduated in marketing before social media. I graduated in marketing before like the real rise of the internet. And so like I graduated in marketing and I did my final report on billboards. You know, who knows who you're going to hit? You know, that's, it's just, it's guessing. But now you have the opportunity as a business owner to speak without filtration directly to the people you're trying to talk to. So the question isn't, how do I do that? The question is, what are you going to say? That's amazing. That is, that is what it's all about right there. So authenticity comes to mind more than anything because you're not trying to sell something. You're just trying to connect, like you said, with your customer and garner their feedback and, and give them, give the people what they want. You know, even though in this business, you can't please all the people all the time. We really try to do that. For sure. And, and it's, and it's so interesting. You know, you're talking about billboards, uh, little does many little do many people know that I actually worked in an advertising agency on Wilshire Boulevard back in 1990. I was an account executive and it was back then all about print and billboards and radio and TV and all that kind of stuff. And that was long before the internet or, you know, social media. So God, how things have changed and how marketing has changed in the industry. Okay. Let's transition. Now I'm looking at your backdrop for the, you know, the full comp podcast. And I want to know all about, how you transition because you you still have true and proper and there's a future mm -hmm. there and we're going to get to that but covid hits right and it stops all of us dead in our tracks and now you've become a podcaster so how did that come about and what are you focusing on in the podcast so our audience can find you and so that they know what what you're talking about who your who your guests are thanks for that softball pitch roger i would love to talk about it all right go um, for it so the, the podcast comes out of answering the same question that I've asked myself at every big turning point in my career. And it's, how can I be most of service? And typically, I'm not just trying to serve my audience or my community's needs. Typically, I'm trying to serve my own. And, and I, I saw this void, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. What I saw was I saw a ton of very practical resources for idle loans and PPP and this and that and how to sue your landlord or how to get out of paying rent or right. whatever it was. Um, yeah, and it, yeah. it was all really great, really practical, really actionable advice. But that wasn't the conversation I wanted to have. I, what I saw was I saw an industry kind of looking around and going, man, man, this pandemic really screwed us. But that's not how I felt about myself and my business or this industry. I felt like we had screwed us. I mean, we, we, when you look at the situation and Yelp is estimating that there's going to be a 53% permanent closure rate, you know, what does that tell you? That tells you that the foundational elements of this industry are not strong. That tells you that most restaurateurs aren't sitting with more than a couple of weeks worth of cash in the bank. Hey, myself included. And I thought it was fine because things were going really well. And I looked at myself and my position with the, in this industry and I thought, man, you know, I got every accolade there was to get except for a James Beard Award in 2019. 
I have a restaurant that generates well over $3 million a year. And I was as screwed as the next guy. How did I get here? And how do we fix this as an industry? And I wanted to have that conversation. And then I wanted to parlay that conversation into what can we do better? How can we fix this? How can we thrive post pandemic? What does reasonable work-life balance look like? And so I wanted a platform to have that conversation. I ended up having a conversation with uh, the folks over at Yelp and, uh, and we decided to create this strategic partnership where I would create a podcast. I would talk to the people that I wanted to talk to about the things that I wanted to talk about and they would help me distribute it. And uh, that was four months ago. That's beautiful. So you got a great relationship with Yelp and how do you have all the time to focus on this and your new business, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but you've got to be pulled in a hundred directions, but you're focused, you're motivated. And uh, like I said, you're a dynamic entrepreneur. Man, we're all used to working a lot of hours. I, I am in the fortunate position in the way that I work for myself. I choose my own schedule and, uh, and I have a servant's heart. So like I enjoy serving the industry and I actually get as much or more gratification from doing this as, as I did from serving my community as a restaurateur. So your new gig is called Flow and it's a virtual reservation system for restaurants, but it does much more than that. And it's a really interesting business model and I'm not going to try to describe it to the audience. I want you to tell us everything. So Flow is a, a great example of something that, that I didn't see that existed in the market and I created it to solve my problem, not yours, but it'll solve your problem too. Um, Prue and Proper opens at 5 p.m. daily and there was no one to answer the phones 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. Either it was me and I didn't want to do it or it was no one, which is stupid, or I was paying someone to do it, which is basically paying someone for eight hours worth of labor when they're doing two hours worth of work, it's just spread out across eight hours. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, is there, is there a solution for this? And there wasn't. So just like I learned how to fix a toilet, I got online and uh, I, I figured out how to write code. And I developed a software whereby one reservationist could answer the phone for multiple restaurants. And that's it. We don't, we, we're not in competition with open table or yelp or resi we use everyone else's reservation software we just field your calls and process the information and because i'm able to drive the cost down by multiple restaurants sharing one reservationist it makes sense and it's like a win for everyone and the way the software is built out it's invisible it's your phone number it's your restaurant's name it's your information it's easy you found some of the best people from some of the busiest restaurants in LA to be your virtual reservation agents, but they're also booking events and there's an online ordering and delivery sort of side to all this. So oh, yeah. tell us how it works how, because these people obviously have to be seamlessly integrated into the restaurants that they're, that they're serving so that they understand the concepts, they understand the menus, they understand as if they're actual employees of those restaurants, even though they're not. How does that happen? So that's a great question. There's a lot of fear around that, which I find interesting. And I would have felt the same fear. But then I ask, who's answering your phones now? And it's either no one or it's like a 19-year-old part-timer that doesn't give a shit about your business. Mm -hmm. So... What we do is we start the process by having you fill out a 75 question questionnaire. This lets us know 
everything about your business, every facet. If somebody calls with an issue, who do we refer it to? Uh, what do you do for birthdays and anniversaries? Uh, what if they have a peanut gluten dairy allergy? You know, what can what dishes work for that? What work for this? What are you most known for? What is the parking situation like? How much is valet? Most of the people that are calling uh, are either calling to book a reservation, book a large party event, or they have buying questions that they're not going to book with you unless they get those questions answered. And so we're there to facilitate all of that. They're leveraging technology with a human touch is how I see it. That's what it is, man. That is, so that is, that is the soul of the business. The question that, that I was trying to answer was, can you leverage tech to put more humanity into the industry as opposed to taking it out? And that's what we did. So there's text messaging, live phone answering. There's also online chat, as I understand yeah, it. So, we're able to put a widget onto your website. Yeah. You have a dedicated reservationist. It's not like it's a pool or a team that's answering. You have your person, your, your Jenny or Robert yeah. or whoever it is. And you know them. They're a member of your team. You're communicating with them with frequency. Um, and the difference between them and your team is they have nothing better to do other than to answer your phones. So they're incredibly focused on doing it. They're incredibly focused on booking and closing because those are the metrics that we use uh, to, to show the success or failure of the platform. Now, it hits me over the head that you're, you're sharing the cost with multiple restaurants and the price is crazy. It's like less than half the minimum wage in most states is what you're actually paying for these mm -hmm. people, which is unbelievable. But you're also uh, touting a 15% sales increase and roughly 1,500 hours of labor savings with this whole package. Like, who could say no to that, right? Is that accurate still? All those things? It is. Absolutely, it's accurate. So, yeah. regardless of who I'm talking to and where you are in the state of your restaurant, you're not absorbing 100% of the demand for your restaurant. You're not answering the phone 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. nonstop. Right. You're not doing it. You're also not aggressively booking out the way we would book you out. Also, you know, when, when you look at the associated cost, which is dirt cheap, and you look at, you know, the estimated profit of booking an event, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm a restaurateur. So like, I'm very bullish on the fourth quarter of this year. I think we're all going to be booking out a shit ton of events. Hallelujah think, to that. Oh, yeah, man. And I think that that starts yeah. next month and the month after that, September and October. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to be booking out for November, December, and January. All of those corporate holidays, all of those anniversaries and birthdays and rehearsal dinners, everything's going to get pushed to fourth quarter. And people can't book that shit out online. They need to talk to somebody. Um, you also have a, so Yelp is estimating the call volume is up by 84% right now. And it's because people are scared. They don't want to go to your restaurant unless they know for a fact that you're not going to kill their grandmother when she walks through the door. So they true. want to know what your social distancing practices are. They want to know what your mask protocols are. They want to know what your cleaning procedures are. And like, it's good to have a human on the phone that can empathize with that and inspire confidence.
that's exactly what it's about right now. Consumer confidence and best practices. I'm absolutely with you on that. You know, that is the crux of what we're trying to do. That's the crux of, you know, consumer confidence leads to repeat business, leads to more business, leads to increasing sales, leads to recovery for this crazy thing. So thank you for that. What does uh, Flow's weekly subscription include? So it includes uh, a full-time virtual reservation. It's 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. It also includes the tech backing, right? So that's voice, that's text message to your existing phone number. And that includes an online chat widget. And something to just throw out there because I am in a fortunate position. Uh, I got a shit ton of PPP money for Flow. And I was trying to figure out what to do with it so that I could serve uh, my employees so that I could serve my industry, my current clients. And what I figured out was I had just enough money through the PPP to give 60 restaurants the service completely for free for 60 days with no strings attached. Um, because like I wouldn't want to sign a contract in the, in the light of a global pandemic. Uh, and so we're giving away the service completely for free to the first 60 people that sign up. They can sign up through the website uh, and then they, they'll, they'll be onboarded within the next uh, 30 to 45 days based on volume. That's a beautiful thing. You know, so much of this industry has reached out and has supported and helped each other because obviously we're all in this together. That is a cliche. But I've been so inspired by companies like yours that have given something to customers, not asking anything in return with a solution that's going to improve their business. So that's a beautiful thing. So your, your website, just so that the audience is clear, it's justcallflow.com. And flow is F-L-O. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay, just call <laughs> flow.com and you can get the 60 days absolutely free. I think that's tremendous. Thanks for offering that. So do you, you obviously mentioned that you're compatible with most of the reservation platforms out there and you're adding new ones all the time or how does that work? Do you need to get the reservation platform before you call flow? <laughs> yes, you should have the reservation platform before you yep. call flow. If you don't, we can yep. talk to you about all of your options and help you line up. You know, the other thing I'll say is this, I'm very bullish on reservation platforms. And the reason being, like, I don't know what this world looks like in six months, but I I can tell you personally, like, I'm not banking on walk-ins, you know? I want to make sure that I am fully booked out for three turns on a Saturday night. Otherwise, like, what's the point in opening? Like, you know, in a a strong market with a strong economy where everyone's going out and going out to eat, um, it's really easy to just say, oh, well, you know, if we're busy, we're busy. And if we aren't, we aren't. Um, but this is a game of pennies at this point. So I, I would recommend anyone, regardless of tier, if you're not taking reservations, you should really consider it once we open back up. And your onboarding process is super simple and super quick, right? Tell us about that. It is. Uh, so uh, you reach out to us saying you want to be part of the 60 for 60. We send you the onboarding doc. You send it back. We build out your profile. We come back to you with any questions. Uh, and then we send you a four digit code. You type that code into your phone and you're good to go. That's it. No, it's no hardware, no software, no installation, no training, no nothing. We work invisibly within your existing system. Beautiful. And you can get a free demo at justcallflow.com. Also, you can check the whole thing out before you decide. Absolutely. You can look at case studies. You can look at sample reports from real restaurants. You can call those restaurants, see how the service works. Um, We're here for you. (laughs) 
That's awesome. You're such a genuine, likable guy. And there's that humble thing that keeps coming up. But I, I just love the, the passion that's just pouring out of you right now about everything you're doing. You know, that, that's Thank inspiring you, to everybody out there. Because, you know, we're resilient people in this industry. We have to be. We're digging deep right now. So many people are digging deep because, like you said, maybe 50% or more might not survive. And you just got to have faith. You just got to reach out for the resources because they are available and out there. You talked about PPP and idle funds as of a week or so ago and probably still currently there are more funds available. So if you haven't already mm -hmm. gotten those funds, reach out and get some. It may be the difference to save your business or not. Let's talk about the future of Crew and Proper. You're operating now. Did you operate or pivot to sort of the curbside pickup model and now you can seat people inside once again? Like, how's that going and where is it going? I haven't done shit. <laughs> I, okay. uh, we closed uh, first week of March yeah. uh, completely and, uh, and we have yet to reopen. Uh, one, one of the things that, that spurred me to create the podcast and to talk to you know, guys like you and Chef Andrew Zimmern and all of these, these really smart people on the show trying to figure out the path forward we didn't net out a ton of money in a great economy with a huge top line and i'm not particularly interested in reopening again under worse conditions so until i see a path for profitability i don't see the point in reopening and i, and I know that we all to some degree Feel that same rush that we did when we were building it out to like reopen and oh i got to get it open and oh we got to get back to work but like for what like to go back to working 100 hours a week for your landlord just so you can pay rent even though you're not really paying your vendors and it's not like you're not paying yourself you're actually paying to work for free exactly and i i don't want i don't want to live in that world so once we have once i see a model that that somewhat resembles mine that is actually generating real bottom line revenue in a percentage that I respect. That's when I'll adopt that model and move forward. Because I gotta tell you, Roger, like the days of me being excited about netting out six to 10% are done. If I can't net out 15%, one, there's something severely wrong with my business model and the overarching business model for the industry. Uh, and two, like how is that juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, you're talking about reality for far too many restaurant operators and, and managers right now. Margins below 10%, margins in the 6 to 8% range. While these people are working 80 hours a week and missing their kids growing up and tied to a restaurant that isn't performing because they're on the hook for, you know, the mortgage or the rent payment or a lease or they signed a personal guarantee with their bank. It's just a disaster. And that was before COVID hits, you know? Right. So it's like you and I are fully aware and understanding of the pain and, the, and you know, the, the challenges that the industry is going through. So when do you think you may reopen, Prue? And will you shift the business model and figure out a way to increase your net margin? So once it is clear that we'll be able to reopen for dine-in and yeah. stay open, mm -hmm. that is that is that we are already in the process of trying to figure out obviously what the business model looks like. But until we are sure that we are able to reopen and stay open, uh, I don't want to reopen. I it just it, it is too concerning to me. Right. Uh, to it's just you know how much money everybody listening knows how much money it costs to restart this machine. Totally. So to restart. 
to rehire, to onboard, to fill the freezers and the fridges with food again, um, to prep everything out. Uh, it's going to be a huge undertaking. So to do it for two or three weeks and then shut it back down uh, it isn't really worth doing at this point. Having said that, because I know I'm throwing a lot of doom and gloom out there, um, I do want to reopen. I am excited to reopen. And I do think these things. One, I think we have nationally suffered from a, uh, like this endemic labor shortage, which with a 53% closure rate, there's going to be a labor surplus. We are all going to employ the best friggin' people on the planet. They're going to be loyal. They're going to stay with us. And your life isn't going to revolve around the desperate search for a dishwasher anymore. So that's really inspiring. With a 53% closure rate, half of your competition is gone. And most of that competition were shit restaurants or, or restaurants that were run poorly or restaurants that were opened by people that had no business getting into this industry. Um, and so we're going to be in an amazing position in the way that demand will come back and the supply will have dropped by 50%. Um, and lastly, at least for me, there's a, a renewed perspective on work-life balance. And I, I've worked to become a better entrepreneur, not restauranter, but entrepreneur over the course of the last four months. So that when I go back to work, um, I don't have to sacrifice my family to secure my future. Beautiful. You know, you just summed up the bright side of the pandemic right, right there. And, you know, there's so many upsides to this whole thing. You know, the funds that have been available that we talked about gave restaurants maybe a new lease on life. Um, the future is you see it with half the competition gone and there being a surplus of the best and brightest staff that you can pick from, that you will create what I call your dream team staff. That's an upside. Just like COVID, there's been so many news stories about how the planet is healing itself and how there's less pollution. And all these things have been bright sides in an otherwise very dismal situation. So I'm really glad you, you summed that up. That gives us a lot of hope you know, for the future of our businesses. So again, you know, I just want your, your conversation with me today to inspire and uplift people. And I think you've done, done just that. Is there anything we've missed in this conversation? We've covered a lot of ground, everything from your backstory to your restaurant, your bar, your restaurant, your podcast, your new online reservation system, how you're helping the industry with the 60 for 60 program and all that. Um, anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I mean, uh, other than to tell your audience, and I mean it sincerely, that like, I love you and we're all in this together. And, you, you know, it all sounds so cliche, but like, you've got to be in it to understand how difficult it is. And, and the fact that, that we're all now in, the, in this amazing position to have these conversations, these conversations that you started years ago with, with both your business and your podcast, um, and we're all able to say, you know, it's not as easy as we made it out to be. It's actually much harder. And we're able to create solutions together. It is a very difficult time, but it's also a super inspiring time. And, uh, and if we all carry our own water, I, I have a feeling this could be a renaissance for you and me and the rest of the industry. I love that word, renaissance. You're a renaissance man. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, thanks so much, Joshua Coppell. And you, you are an inspiration for this business, and I'm proud to call you my friend and fellow industry colleague and, and professional as well. 
That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks, audience, for tuning in, as always, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks again, Joshua, for joining us. Thank you. Wow, guys, what an inspiration. You know, passion, authenticity, genuine. Um, these are just some of the qualities, and humble, describe my guest today, Joshua Coppell. I'm really pleased uh, that I've gotten to know Joshua as a fellow industry professional, one who cares, one who gives back, one who's such a dynamic entrepreneur that he's pushing the envelope ever forward to improve our business and improve our industry. And that's really what it's all about. We are passionate, resilient people. We're going through the worst crisis that this industry had ever you know, never anticipated, could never imagine happening, but it did happen. And now the resiliency and digging deep really is, is coming out in so many ways. And that came out in this episode. So thanks again to Joshua. We talked a little bit about, you know, the power of training and the power of staff and the power of customer confidence and, and, and all those things. And just so important to how you run your business today. You know, getting customers to come back into your restaurant so that your sales then grow and people feel comfortable dining out again is mission number one. So it all starts with your staff who are the foundation of your business, ambassadors for your business that make friends with your customers as we discussed today. So if this intrigues you, why don't you check out SalesStars at RestaurantRockstars.com. You know, it's a program, it's an online turnkey program that helps you build what I call your dream team staff that give amazing dining experiences to your customers. It's all about best practices. It's all about service and sales because they're both the lifeblood of your business. So check that out. I really appreciate you listening. So if you like this episode or all of our episodes, please leave us a review on iTunes. And I look forward to seeing you all in the next episode. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.